don't kill us. Please, please don't kill us. You know I love you, baby. I wouldn't leave you. It wasn't my fault. You miserable slug. You think you can talk your way out of this? You betrayed me. No, I didn't. Honest. I ran out of gas. I had a flat tire. I didn't have enough money for cab fare. My touch didn't come back from the cleaners. An old friend came in from out of town. Someone stole my car. There was an earthquake. A terrible flood. Locust. It wasn't my fault, I swear to God! Hello, this is Chaos Radio Express International, the 15th episode, and uh, this time it's more or less live, from the 24th Chaos Communication Congress in Berlin. The annual uh, CCC, the Chaos Communication Congress, uh, Congress, is the annual event of the Chaos Computer Club. I'm, I'm with here with Dan Kaminsky. Hello, Dan. Hey, Tim. Um, you have been... A visitor to this event for a while. I don't know when. This is my fourth year here at CCC. In a row? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're almost a veteran right now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, um, I think not. Well, quite a lot of people have come to know you here, and uh, I might add, appreciate uh, that you're coming every time and presenting very cool stuff as well. Um, but for those who don't know you, um, maybe you can just describe what, wh who you are, where you're coming from, and what you, you know, what I what do. You're working on, right? Well, my name's Dan Kaminsky. I'm the uh, director of penetration testing for a security consulting firm in the United States called IOActive. Uh, I actually do. Uh, I've been doing security research now for about seven years. Uh, maybe a little longer, even past that. Um, a lot of my research is focused on looking at the fundamental design of the systems we use to interconnect e with each other. Um, not so much looking at the bugs in them as in, you know, you do this and it crashes. But actually, what are these things capable of? What are they designed to do? And what perhaps might be problematic in the fundamental designs? Uh, Through that research, I've looked at uh, encrypted communication protocols, the way that domain names are turned into IP addresses, and recently I've been looking at web browsers. Uh, the amount of functionality inside of a web browser is pretty substantial, and I've started looking at, well, are there issues fundamentally with the kind of things that are available? And in a couple of instances, there are. But, but before you started doing that, what, I mean, how... I wonder how did you come to computers? When did you start using <laughs> machines? Oh, I've, I, I've been using computers since before I could handwrite. Um, very, very young, I don't know, early 80s, there was an old system called Delphi that was on the, the old X25 networks, Telenet, Timnet, those guys. And uh, I don't know, I was growing up and uh, dad came home one day, you know, here's a computer and, uh, you know, here's a little modem, go call up something fun. And uh, you know, go ahead and play on those networks with my manual hand-dialed modem. It was a lot so of it fun. immediately started with networking. Pretty much, yeah. I've been networking my entire life. So, um, so you have been more. I mean, some start with programming, some start just with gaming in a way. Um, and those who tend to start with networking usually have a totally different approach. Uh, from my from my experience, I don't know how you, how you feel it. Um, by immediately grasping the power of the networks and what, what lies within. I, you know, I could actually see that. Um, it's a matter of w what are your expectations? Uh, when I was growing up, it was all about, you know, what, what can I reach? What can I connect to? You know, before the internet, I mean, I, I remember the first time there was even an online encyclopedia, like long before Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica actually went ahead and did some experiments with putting their content on you know, the internet. And this was, I don't know, 95, 96. And it was this big deal because, my God, this 
the internet now has useful information. I mean, obviously things have uh, improved in uh, over the years, but uh, um, it's always it's always been you know what are what are the toys to play with? You know, then the ne- there's always this like feel of maybe I can find it all or maybe I can find this obscure cool new thing. That's just how it's always been. So, but you you haven't really started with security. I mean, security itself <laughs> is uh, sort of a new, well, not really a new concept, but now it's a, today it, it's a business and it's sort of the the first and foremost um, discipline that hackers are usually associated with. So I got into security through a, a fairly amusing path. Um, I actually got a job at Cisco doing really boring stuff like maintaining systems without sufficient documentation. And uh, it turned out a heck of a lot easier to break them. So um, instead of maintaining them, my job became find out how easy it is to break them and make that not happen. And uh, I was young. I was an intern. And you know, I could just hang out there all day. And that's pretty much what I did. You know, Show up at work, read uh, you know, crypto books and security guides. And just kind of became the, the, the local guy who did all the security wonkery. It was who, a lot of who fun. Who breaks everything. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. What, what kind of break? Oh, I mean... It was a lot of stuff with, well, we've got you know, this kind of functionality. How can we abuse it? You know, you, you've got 100 buttons to press. One of them's a big red button that has a don't push this sign over it. <laughs> what happens if I push that? <laughs> so <clears throat> so you, today, I mean, I, I, I guess today the security business is like the way you make money from and where you have most experience in so so thinking of security from the business side and from the business and sociological side um there is a problem with people breaking into systems this is it has not gotten it's gotten security's gotten better as a security industry it's our goal to guide vendors to be the force that guides vendors to give them an idea of what changes do they have to make so it's not so easy for stuff to be taken. Uh, without security researchers, how is an engineer supposed to know what they're supposed to do? I mean, you know, someone says to you, you need to implement security. Like, you need to implement high-speed animation or you need to implement a robot arm that moves from here to here and can carry something of 10 pounds, you know. Those latter examples are things that mean something. You know, you can have a test case. You know, the robot arm moves. What does it mean to implement security? Okay, so, you know, make a secure system that can't be broken into. Well, how do people break into things? You know, how do you find out that there's a problem? How do you test? The security industry is the industry that attempts to find out, you know, what are the actual rubber hitting the road, boots on the ground, what are you supposed to do as a developer to build a secure system? That's the kind of research we do. We find out what things people are supposed to do to save themselves. So, but you have been hanging around lots of conferences. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, how many conferences do you attend every year on average? I don't know, I probably go to six or seven a year. Six or seven? Maybe more, maybe less, but I'd say probably six or seven a year. But the Cars Communication Congress is a fixed date on your list now. Absolutely. I, it's, uh, you know, I, I was actually just joking with some of my friends. Uh, I end up coming to Berlin more than almost any other city in the world. So and why? it's not exactly close. <laughs> why? <laughs> uh, the energy of this town is ridiculous. Um, you know, the hackerspaces, Seabase is just an incredible experience that you know, everyone should stop by. Um, it's just a very friendly place. Uh, one of my friends, actually, she used to live in Paris, and there's a big event going on out here, and, and I couldn't come out. So I'm like, Fabienne, why, why don't you go hang out in Berlin and say hi to my friends for me? Yeah, she lives here now. She knows more people than I do. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, and there's not many places in the world that that, could have, that totally could have worked. But Berlin, Berlin has the right energy. I like it. So, and what's the, um, what about the Congress? How have you perceived this this event when you first came here? You know, it's just a very friendly and open environment. I mean, people are playing with stuff. People are building stuff. You know, 
I enjoy a lot of conferences. A lot of conferences, people go to just party and drink and, oh, yeah, you know, I got so drunk last night. And here, you know, people drink. We have a good time. But, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I'm playing with this and what do you think of that? And it's just like a very chill, very friendly, hey, let's go out, grab some food, chat about fun stuff. It's it's very relaxed. So it's different from the other events you're Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a very relaxed, very, you know, uh, I end up leaving CCC every year pretty inspired just because it's such a different perspective on so many things that I do on a day-to-day basis. I really enjoy it. But <clears throat> in the last years, we have also seen more um, mostly security-related conferences coming up mm-hmm. worldwide. I haven't been to many of them. Um, just uh, recently I had the chance to get to Hack in the Box, for instance, in Malaysia, which I also found mm-hmm. very friendly people, very interesting uh, scenes, although the, the scene itself is totally different from, from uh, what we are used here. Well, one, used one, one thing to realize is that there, there are two very distinct types of conferences. One type of conference is the conference that costs, say, $1,000 or thousand euros and up, It is for, you know, your company pays for you to be there. You're flown out. You get a hotel room, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, your job for those couple of days is learn security. Find out what you need to do as an engineer to secure your systems. Then there's another class of conference of which CCC is one of them, which is, yeah, we're people. We play in computers. We play with the technology. Maybe we're building it. Maybe we're doing research. And we're all just going to come hang out. And it, they're not free. You know, people pay. But, I mean, it's not a $1,000 and up. The $1,000 and up stuff is very much, you know, this is a corporate event for training. These kind of events are, yeah, you know, this is what we do. Come hang out. And uh, I go to both. I speak at both. I have a lot of fun at both. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's just two different environments. I would say CCC Congress is uh, a community event. It's community driven. Absolutely. You know, the people who participate in it are participating because they want to be part of it. You know, no no one flew me out here. I flew my I fly myself out for this. So what other events come to your mind when you think about community driven uh events in the technology space? Tourcon's really nice. I, I have a lot of fun out at TourCon in San Diego. They also have a, a, a Seattle show going on right now. Um, ShmooCon has, a, has been pretty cool as well. So there, there, there are a number of these, these cons. DEF CON started out this way. Um, if you're in the right crowds, it still is. I mean, you, it just, DEF CON's gotten so big that, I mean, it, it matters who are you hanging out with, who, you know, who is your crew, Yeah. One of the things that I like about CCC, and I love DEF CON. I do DEF CON every year. One of the things I like about CCC is, you know, even given its size, it still has a very relaxed feel. Yeah, that's true. We have, well, again, we expect 4,000 people to be mm-hmm. here, like last year. And I can only agree. I mean, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to see that it still works the same way as it has 10 years ago, although it was less probably more a couple of hundred <laughs> <laughs> people there. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's good. So, um, but well, so we are, you have been mentioning Schmukon and Tukon. I heard of them. I haven't I haven't been there. Um, are what are the similarities and what are the differences when you compare it to a European or this event? Um, let me think about that for a second. <sighs> I haven't gone to too many of these small European events, so I can't really speak to them. Um, One of the things I like about community events is there's really no distance between speakers and attendees. You know, we're all just people coming out to go play with stuff. Um, you know, the, the, the corporate model, again, which is a lot of fun, but there's a lot of like, you know, you know it's, it's somewhat of a formalized environment where, you know, there are the speakers who are delivering information and there are the attendees who are receiving information and, uh, you know, Not to say I haven't learned a huge amount from attendees at, uh, at the corporate events as well. But yeah, I mean, at the community events, it's just, it's a lot of people hanging out, talking. It works. I heard that, well, some speakers told me that um, they, when they, have, they are preparing a talk uh, to be held at the Cars Communication Congress, 
they're getting a little nervous because they know if they are, you know, if they're not really delivering good information or delivering it in the right way, they know they could face a very angry mob <laughs> in the audience criticizing every detail uh, of, of what they said. So they expect a very en engaging, you know, strong community. Uh, what's your experience in that sense? I mean, you had a talk every time you've been here? I've, you? I've talked every time I've been here, and the first time I was here, I talked twice. So, oh. and I mean, basically every time I give a talk, I tend to try to do pretty engaging talks, and I'm pretty rough on my own slides. So uh, that's just how I do things. I can't, I can't say I'm any harder on myself for CCC than I am anywhere else. Just this is what I do. So did you get instant feedback here? People seem to like it. People seem to like the work. Uh, <laughs> the live demo was a lot of fun to get working this year. Uh, I'm about 15 minutes into my talk, and I'm like, I don't have an Ethernet cable plugged in. I don't have my demo set up. Hmm. Can I get away with not doing a live demo at CCC? No, no, I should probably have that actually set up. All right, that much I'll say. I can't say there's any other con that in the middle of my talk I'd be like, all right, for you guys, I'll actually spend three minutes and bring up the terminal windows and set everything up because, yeah, you guys need to see the real deal. <laughs> that, that much is absolutely true. Any other con, I'd have been like, you know what, if you're interested, come see me after. Here, I've got a full room. I'm like, yeah, you guys want to see this code work. So... <clears throat> Are you do are you considering are you well do you call yourself a hacker? Absolutely. Also in the US? Uh-huh. No, uh, you know you What's need your experience you with that. <laughs> <laughs> I have had to explain it a couple of times. Look, you need hackers to fight hackers like you need soldiers to fight soldiers. You can't have someone on a battlefield being like what is going on? There are these pieces of metal and they are flying through the air and if they hit you you start bleeding. Wow. Someone should have told me. Hacker does not describe what side you're on. Hacker describes the fact that you know how the systems actually function and you use the, that knowledge of how they actually function and your benefit. Now, there are good hackers and there are bad hackers. Like there are soldiers who are on your side and there are enemy soldiers. That's just how it works. Well, that means you're sort of um, accepting the, the bad connotation um There that are, is associated with the term? You know, you, you could say that there are hackers who are crackers, who are attackers, who are breaking into things, and those are hackers who are doing things that are criminal actions. And then there are hackers who are attempting to do research to prevent those criminal actions from being possible. Now, what would happen if there were no good hackers, if the only people out there who knew how to break into systems were those who were actually trying to steal everything? Well, guess what? We'd have no idea how to defend ourselves. We'd have no idea how to protect resources. And you know what? The bad guys wouldn't have to be too skilled because the good guys would be incompetent. <laughs> we're, we're struggling as it is. You know, at least this way, you know, the... There is knowledge for those who are at least attempting to invest in security to go out, find out what they need to do in order to protect themselves. And that involves talking to hackers, ideally talking to good guys. So, I mean, you might have noticed or maybe you have known before that, um, especially in Germany, I would say in general in Europe, the hacker scene also has a very strong uh, point uh, that try to make in terms of policies in terms mm -hmm. of politics uh, trying to influence the society more or less directly by addressing the media with public hacks or just telling uh, them about it um, mm, w does this work the same way in the US I don't think so um, the US is a lot more corporate driven than Europe is and influence basically does not stem from community hacking groups as much as it does from large corporations that need secure resources. Like, for example, in the States, a lot of the influence of the hacker community in terms of, hey, we need to encrypt our stuff, doesn't come from random individual people saying, hey, encryption is good. It comes from companies that need to be able to have people telecommuting in and have that be safe. Because I don't know if you've noticed, we have a bit of an oil shortage going on worldwide. 
and from electronic commerce providers that would very much like people to uh, spend money online so they don't have to go ahead and send it off to a retailer who's going to take some huge cut. The, at least in the States, those two forces are why we have um, uh, open encryption standards and it's, it's possible to export actual effective cryptography. You know, if it turned out that we that effective cryptography was illegal, it would have been my community that would have said, "Don't spend money on the internet because it's unsafe." And that 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 is ultimately how we now have valid crypt cryptography, and uh, in return, people spend money. But apart from this security-related um, politics, um, I mean, here we are also discussing heavily issues like can we use a computer for voting for instance where our stand is generally no <laughs> because it is a computer and a computer is a very bad idea in general um, which everyone people. everyone knows how to do secure electronic voting I've heard dozens of kids you know you hear like college freshmen coming up with the system to build it and it's always you have a computer It prints out a paper ballot that happens to be both simultaneously human-machine readable. You put the ballot into a counting machine. The machine makes a quick vote. If there's a call for a, for a, uh, a, a manual revote, it is actually possible to do so by going to the printouts. You can have open hardware for someone going ahead and making the printouts. You can have open hardware for counting the devices. And at the end of the day, everything can be manually checked. I've heard this proposal dozens of times. It is not a technical problem, the voting situation. It, it, it is truly an organizational issue where the knowledge of how to do secure voting is just not getting to the point where it's actually what's being deployed. Actually, I, I, I disagree here with that view because this um, particular view you are taking here is... Um, Oh, yeah, we have to think about how to do voting with computers. No, It's they, they the future. While I think, why should we think about using computers for voting in the first place? Oh, because we actively want... Oh, well, you know, there are language proliferation and the need for quick counts on a vote. Part of, you know, if it takes three weeks to find out who won an election, the whole effect of the election is actually diminished. Remember, uh -huh. the, the, point of, the point of an election is not to determine the winner. The point of an election is to definitively define the losers. So the losers stop agitating for a couple years until the next time they get a crack at it. <laughs> That's actually what elections are about. You think so? The, empirically, that is totally what they're about. Well, but the result is the same. I mean, in the end, it's going... Uh, what, what's it, I mean, we have 80 million people living in Germany. That's almost a third of the US mm -hmm. and it takes us a couple of hours to count it on paper so I don't really need uh, see a need uh, there but but here we are you know, we're talking about how to but uh, how, apply hang, hang, hang on hang yes. on a second in the states we have much more direct representation so we actually have farm in, in an average election in an average election in Germany and I, I apologize because I don't know the German system that well how many things do you vote on What do you mean, how many things? How, ma how many choices can you make in uh, a single ballot? Depends on the, uh, if it's a regional election, where it could be more, generally a national election, it's less. Do, now, so for a regional election, how many, do you guys have an initiative system where, you know, uh, 50,000 people sign something saying, I want this on the ballot, and, you know, there's, say, 20 or 30 propositions? How oh, you mean combining other elections with an election day and then uh, like, like giving you, many votes on many things? Yeah, like, do you, vote on, do you vote on issues directly or do you only vote for people? Um, it's more for people or uh, it's more for parties actually and mm -hmm. it depends on reg regional elections it's sometimes a bit different where you actually pass over uh, votes to certain people mm -hmm. but uh, even then even if it's a lot I mean the S Switzerland for instance they're voting every few weeks on everything and they can do it with paper I don't really see the point where a computer could help because it would uh, it al always opens up so ultimately, we don't, di we, we ultimately don't disagree. Like, 
pa- a, a physical record is what is required. Right. Paper is needed. The only question is, how sh- what should fill in the bubbles? Should it be a person with a pencil? Should there you know, be poking holes out? You know, uh, a, a, a printer onto paper is fine. Yeah, it's a as recountability. L- as, I yes. think we totally agree on this one. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're, on, we're on the same side here. There are uses for computers for dealing with large numbers of languages and when there's a huge number of issues. You know, the last time I voted, there was something like 70 or 80 think, qu- decisions that I had to make. But you know, what would make, make you trust a computer system nothing. that is taking your voting? Nothing. Nothing, okay. Only the paper. I just want a computer to fill in the paper. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Because, so there was this, there's this classic photo from the election in 2000 where you know, they, we called them hanging chads. So you have these ballots where a vote is recorded by a hole being punched out of the paper. And you've got this guy, and he's looking up at this paper, and there's this chad hanging, and it's like a little piece of paper. And he's trying to decide, is it more than 50% hanging? Because if it's more than 50% <laughs> hanging, it was a yes, and if it's less, then it's a no. Okay, that's, uh, that's not good. <laughs> we, we can do better than that. But ultimately, the fact that there is a paper to look at needs to be maintained. You're right. You can't trust the computers. The record of the vote has to be what's on the paper. But can we use a computer to fill in the paper? Yeah, that's fine. Can we use a computer to do a quick vo- reading of the votes to go ahead and parse through? With the knowledge that maybe there's five different vendors who make machine readable, you know, machine vote readers. Great. You know, that is not a problem. The problem is just this insane model where you just send bits up to a server and hope that no one in like the 10 different spots was a bad guy. Well, guess what? There are bad guys out there. We know there are bad guys out there. I have an industry because there are bad guys out there. So now comes in the hackers. What are they doing about it? I mean, we try to educate the, the public to, you know, tell them and make them understand the, the core problem of it. And, well, we're lucky to be able to address a certain part of, of that public. Is there any movement that's related to hackers that is able to address um, the public in the U.S. in, in that sense? Reg- that, regulation or is... Or is there any kind of advice you could give for uh, groups in order to achieve this? Um, well, right now, most of the energy is actually going on uh, websites that accept personally identifiable information and anything related to the credit system. They're actually getting under increasing scrutiny to actually lock down their, uh, their sites. So it's very bad when a website gets broken into and 100,000 credit card numbers get compromised. That's just not good for the system. And the losses to the system have been increasing. They become, you know, quite problematic. That's where probably the most energy is going today. Um, there's been a lot of work from all the operating system vendors to go ahead and make the operating systems more secure. Web browsers are getting better. They're not where they need to be, but they're getting a heck of a lot better. Um, one of the big problems we have is that you know, at the end of the day, the fundamental model of using computers is go ahead and you, know, you have things you want, you go online, you get them. Maybe you install some software. And that model, like the actual by design way computers are used, the things that make us productive are the exact same things that make us vulnerable. So if you say, I don't want users to be vulnerable, guess what? Now they're not productive. This is actually this huge problem that's hitting IT right now. You know, IT used to be about, one of my friends, Jason Larson, I don't want to steal his argument. Um, he has this great quote. He says, you know, IT used to be about making people more efficient, making it so they could get their jobs done faster. Now, huge amounts of IT are just lock down their machines. Don't let them run any software. Don't let them install anything because they might get a virus. And it's like, You know, when they were installing stuff, they were getting more productive, bringing more value to the company. They were building stuff. But all of those things help them. They don't help IT. And it's IT that has the power to determine what they can and can't use. So maybe there's an end to what we can do with computers? <sighs> the maybe they're just not appropriate for <laughs> what they're being used today? <laughs> well, the, 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 the fundamental problem is that there are things that in the absence of an attacker make people a lot more productive. 
And that is the fundamental force that is that makes computer security so difficult. That as long as there isn't a bad guy, man, you do it this way and your life is easier. Locks, locks are inefficient. You know, you walk up to your door, you you just want the door to open. Security never provides any value to the legitimate user. Security is a service, almost an anti-service for the attacker. It's the attacker that has to experience the door slammed shut in his face. The normal user, that door should be open every single time. So you have this situation where the consumer of the service is specifically someone who not only is not paying for it, but doesn't want it either. Like would be way happier if you just walk in and steal all your stuff. <laughs> Security does not operate under the, you know, most features. The user who, you know, you're doing all the work for, you know, they want it. Security, no, no, no one wants it. It's that there's people who need to get it in order for the system to be, to be uh, valuable. I want to um, just go back one step again to this um, relationship between the hackers and, and the public. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I don't want to talk so much about the security-related stuff in terms of online business and such, more about this uh, special issue of privacy mm -hmm. and, well, freedom in general. I mean, we've seen the U.S. losing a lot of freedoms in the last years and just doesn't seem to, s to stop. Uh <laughs> hey, hey don't, don't, don't put it just on us. The, you know, the, the entire West is a, is a band oh, yeah, freedom. It's, it's, it's infecting us now as well uh, <laughs> as a result of it. In a I wouldn't way. even say it comes from us. Let me tell you, Britain is uh, kicking some ass. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're totally right. I'm not, not saying it's coming from you to us and, and, and it, it's your fault. But <laughs> I just say, how does... I mean, the, 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 the citizens of the USA have always been very proud on you know their freedoms it's been, it's branding you know one of the really interesting perspectives and I, i think it can only be understood from an advertising perspective uh we used to have the soviet union and the united states had a brand of freedom when you work with the americans when you follow the americans individuals can follow their own path They, you know, the American dream, the anyone can work hard and think and be an entrepreneur and build something. And that was the brand. That was the force. That was this theme, this mantra. And when the Soviet Union fell, the force that required the brand fell with it. And so that's why the brand has been dying, because the, the counterforce, the perception of oppression on the other side of the curtain is gone. And, and with it is is our branding requirement f to hold on to freedom. So, is there anything hackers can do about it? Um, maybe mean, more out here, but uh, <sighs> the best that we can do is identify threats. I mean, that's that's what we do, right? We figure out how the system can be used in ways that may or may not be good. But hey, this is the a bit, these are the capabilities of this system. Um, can we advocate for more freedoms? I hope so. But I mean, we're not advocating, we're advocating from a position of knowledge, but not necessarily a position of any increased power. Well, which is uh, not bad to uh, be on the position of knowledge in a mm -hmm. way. So, um, I forgot what I <laughs> wanted to, to go on. I wanted to, um, well, the, this... Actually, actually yes. hang on. There, there is one thing that comes to okay. mind. You know, knowledge is asymmetric. You know, the knowledge is not equally distributed. There are people who do know more about what's going on. There are people who don't. One of the best things that hackers can do is figure out what is the actual nature of the systems that are being deployed. You know, if you are watching, like, for example, with the passports that were going out with RFID built into them, like, if it wasn't for security researchers, they would, you know, every single, every single passport in the world within five years, you could find people. They'd show up on scanners, you know, show me the identity of every person within N meters was the technology that was going to be universal. 
and it's security researchers that are able to say, wait a second, <laughs> this is not necessarily the kind of stuff we want to build. And from that perspective, that is knowledge that directly leads to power. Because at the end of the day, there is an engineer who knows this possible. But is that engineer open and public? No, that, that engineer is in the company building the passports. And by the way, by building the passports, the company is going to have contracts uh, for worth quite a bit of money. That engineer isn't exactly motivated to tell anyone. So from the perspective of being one of the few groups out there that is a check on the incomplete delivery of information to the public, hackers have a tremendous amount of power to analyze the systems that are being proposed for each individual to work under. And that is actually a huge value that we bring. In that particular case, who was bringing out the word on this? Who was putting a stop to the plans? Um, there's been a huge community that's been doing a lot of the attacks on RFID systems. Uh, Melanie Rybeck's been doing a lot of good work. Uh, one of my former coworkers attacked the door systems that a lot of companies use. Uh, it's very, very strange, actually. Um, You know, we're, we're actually today in 2007, there, there are vendors that make metal keys that are actually remarkably hard to pick. And just as we finally have locks that are hard to pick, everyone is switching to these magic badges that you sweep over a sensor and then the door opens and no one thinks how they work. And I got to be honest, most of the time it's just the barcode. It's a 12 digit number. Someone can walk next to you and get the magic 12 digit number and then the door opens. It's a little bit ridiculous. Um, so there's been a huge, pretty good community of security researchers who are just like saying, you know, this isn't necessarily how we want to build secure systems. And it really isn't something we want to mandate with the force of government law that, uh, you know, you're going to carry this on you if you intend to travel anywhere. So who was bringing, so if you say this was coming out of the security scene, as if I understand mm -hmm. you right. How did this news spread so that it actually made an impact on the government? Um, I, we, uh, we are lucky enough to have pretty good influence with press. Um, security researchers tend to be treated as, you know, as authoritative sources, uh, mainly because at the end of the day, if someone challenges us, we break their system and then we look pretty good. <laughs> and that happens a couple dozen times and uh, it, it's a good way to get credibility. And it's more than just the tech media. Because that's the thing. You, you can't do a demo that says, no, that doesn't work. You can totally do a demo that says, yeah, it does. So that's, that's why there's a lot of credibility from, from hackers. We don't just talk about what can be broken. We actually say, no, really, and watch. And then we do it. And that's how, how it worked this time. So uh, mm -hmm. I mean, this, this research made it into the mainstream media mm -hmm. over that path and it actually made an impact on the government because yeah. they finally found out that they uh, are building a device to automatically blow up Euro citizen <laughs> in other countries in a way. <laughs> I, uh, n n now, that you, now that you mention it, we did actually build a demo in which RFID was used to explode a, a paintball mine. <laughs> And uh, I, I got to tell you, you know, the person's walking along, beep, boom. So that never, never underestimate the importance of theatrics in your demos. <laughs> yeah, and explosions. <laughs> boom is always, always a good period at the end of a sentence. <laughs> So, um, is this so? The security scene is a very special part of the of the hacker scene. It seems to well, grow, get more importance worldwide. Would you agree on this? I don't think. Well, one thing that's to be one thing to be absolutely fair is to realize that the security scene is a subset of the hacker community. The hacker community is large. You have first of all, you just have users who you know like exploring how systems work. You have security professionals who give advice to corporations and other individuals as to how to protect themselves. You have what we refer to as black hat hackers that, you know, they're part of the hacker scene out there and they break into stuff. The hacker community is large. Like there are people who know how to do stuff that are good. There are people who do stuff that is bad. There are people who just do stuff because it's cool because they want to explore the technology. They're not trying to help any company. They're not trying to attack anyone. They just want to know how things work. And you know, fr frankly, that's, that's just security. 
technology is for some subset of society technology is interesting in its own right what to do with that knowledge depends on the individual so um what i found very interesting was the move by by microsoft recently to advance the security of their operating system by I had the feeling they were basically inviting the whole security scene on this planet uh, to <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> um, I, I know that you have been uh, involved in this. You, you have said this um, publicly. So that's why I ask. Otherwise, I guess mm. you know, can't really talk so much about your uh, clients and definitely you can't talk about what was going on there at Microsoft. But maybe you can um, tell us a bit about the change in, in, in mindset that might have been behind this uh, effort to actually address the scene in a way that didn't before? Well, what's important to realize that in, in 2003, we had what's referred to as the Summer of Worms. And it was June, July, and August, we had three major worms. And in those three months, Windows did not work. This was a company-threatening event for Microsoft. Like, That multi-billion dollar organization could have gone out of business over what happened. That was the force that, as far as I can tell, changed the nature of security. After years and years of the security people, and they had some very good security people there even then. After years of them saying, we're going to get into a whole bunch of trouble if we don't fix our stuff. Well, they got into a whole bunch of trouble. They got into com near company ending kind of trouble. And, you know, look what they did. They delayed Vista by years while they built Windows XP, SP, Windows XP SP2, which to this day is probably one of the best releases of an operating system Microsoft ever, has ever done. You know, they went ahead and said, okay, this security stuff matters. And when they went to build Vista, which you know, wasn't... True security does require starting from first principles and saying, you know, we're going to do a major release here. We're going to go top to bottom. XP SP2 was wow, we're, we're going to die. Let's, let's patch up everything we can, you know, work as hard as possible. But there's some things you just can't change in a service pack. So for Vista, they brought myself and, you know, as you said, a you know, huge number of people in from outside the company to say, you know, here's what we see out there. Here are the things you should look for. Let's sit down with you, work together, and actually figure out what it takes to build a secure operating system. And you could decide how you do it yourself? Um, well, we told them we got to file bugs and they couldn't ship until they fixed them. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a geek. Like, really? You're going to do what I tell you? Sweet. <laughs> But that took a while. Uh, it's very hard. Security is not free. Secure engineering is not free. One of the big forces that really keeps code insecure is, man, you know, your customer's paying you for something that works. You know, No one is paying you for something that can't get hacked into until they get hacked. And then they're like, why didn't you make it secure? And they come back. They're all angry at you. Maybe they won't buy anything again. But, you know, there's this real perception that if it isn't secure the first time, and eh, you know what? We got it out three or six months earlier. And, and fixing some of that, my big fear is actually regulation. That, you know, if... If co average code quality doesn't improve, there's going to be a lot more liability on releasing code that ultimately gets hacked. Like that, that's what I'm seeing as a, as a likelihood. You know, we, we do everything in our power as the security community to spread the message of here's how you write secure things. But at the end of the day, business people have to respond to dollars. And if, if the dollars don't align towards deploy secure systems, sometimes they won't. Often they won't. The computer business is, well, obviously dominated by a few huge companies that can spend a lot of money. I don't know so much. Well, Microsoft has obviously spent a whole lot of money on this. Um, not so sure about the other big companies. But what is your advice for all these smaller companies and projects, especially in this uh, Web 2, 3, whatever, dot .o craze that try to set up services and systems, how should they apply the concept of security to their development process? Well, the, the, the first thing is, you know, you, you said earlier that, you just said that you know, the computer industry is dominated by a couple of companies. And I don't buy it. Uh, I think at this point, there's, there's a lot of the 
the core elements of computing are dominated by a, a couple of major platforms. But the web stuff is huge. Like the amount of work that goes into how do you actually adapt computers to a particular site, to a particular company, you know, all sorts of line of business apps are being written to the web. And you know what? I got to be honest. Most of the time, the, these applications that are built are terribly insecure, are embarrassingly insecure. I've watched junior people break into online banks. This is depressing. Like, <laughs> you know, you wonder why there's online bank fraud. Like, the online banking sites are just getting hammered. Everything's getting hammered because it's not the actual stuff by the big vendors has gotten pretty good. Not just Microsoft. A lot of the big vendors have cleaned up at least portions of their act. Remember, big companies are not monolithic. You might have one group that's doing really well and another group that isn't on board yet. Groups get on board when they get hit. Then they get threatened with being closed down. Then they get the religion. <laughs> um, these small guys, they never get, there's so many of them that they think they'll never get hit. And then all of a sudden, the, this bank calls up and says, because of you, we got owned. And it's like, there, there, there's so many. And everyone's writing insecure code because it's easy to write insecure code. How we do things such that it is not so easy to write systems that are easy to get broken into, that is ongoing research that I think the entire security community is working on. It's, it's very, very hard. The native, easy, normal way to do stuff leads to things blowing up. So is security the thing people should look at first whenever they are de developing something from scratch? Security should be something they are aware of during development. At the end of the day, we aren't building systems to be secure any more than you build a building because you want a door with a lock on it. But guess what? You know, you, you want a door with the lock on it just the same. And if you had a building, if you built a building and it was unlockable, if it was impossible to lock the door, you know what? You'd have trouble getting tenants. That is actually the situation we're looking at in the near future. That if you build a big, expensive, complicated system and it turns out that it's insecurable, people aren't going to be able to deploy it. So a company like Microsoft, they so now they have been taking all the hackers and fixing their operating system. But this is not just a state, now we are secure forever. No, no, it, They have to incorporate this um, process of on integrating security into the whole development process. Mm -hmm. um, so how, how did they do it and what is to learn from that uh, for other companies or other projects that try to build secure systems from the ground up? Well, one of the very interesting lessons from the Microsoft experience is that it's actually possible. That's, that's not a small statement. I mean, there is a real feeling by some that, you know, you, secure code was impossible to write. You know what? I've spent the last two years at Microsoft seeing their older code and their newer code. And let me tell you, it's possible if it's actually something people are aware of through the entire process, it's possible to get secure code shipping. Um, They've, they have their whole system called the security development life cycle. I'm not an expert in it, but it is very, very interesting that it actually works. Um, I can you know, speak to the results. If you look, what's interesting, though, is if you look at code, if you look at attacks more accurately, originally you'd scan a network, you'd scan a system, and you'd say, oh, okay, well, this has send mail you know, 8129, which had this vulnerability, and I will now deploy this standard vulnerability against send mail, or this standard vulnerability against SMB, or this standard vulnerability against this, or this standard vulnerability against that. In other words, the things from the operating system were what you attacked. That era is, is if not over, it is certainly fallen by the wayside. It's not what's in the operating system anymore because the operating system has gotten so good. It's what is actually being deployed at the web layer. What is actually the stuff that this individual company is dealing with? Uh, you know, you, you don't have the, the standard thing that gets you into every company on earth. You have the someone sits down, looks at your website for 20 minutes, and then breaks in. They had to be smart enough to look at your particular website. They had to actually think about what was going on at your thing. But they still got in just the same. 
Now, this is an improvement. I mean, you, you look at the summer of worms and people were breaking into every Windows network on earth with code so dumb it could be put into a piece of software. That era is, is you know, ending and is being replaced with, well, you know what, now you need to actually target someone. You need to spend some time thinking about their particular site. And, uh, and I'd say that's a win. So, so, so again, what's your advice for uh, somebody starting a project uh, of any size? Um, how to, what, at what point in, 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 in time of development should they think about security? They first things first? First things first, the concept is, the golden rule of security is what are you parsing and who are you parsing it for? Keep track during your original design. Be aware. You know what? I'm taking image files from this guy. I'm taking XML from that guy. I'm taking a dependency here, a dependency there. And have a catalog of what you're taking in from where. Because every input point is a possible attack surface. Then from there, be aware of, okay, well, if I'm parsing this in C, Okay, what are the potential risks? I'm parsing this with the Java XML stack. Okay, are, are there any issues that I need to know of? Once you start from a basis during the design phase of knowing what you're parsing and who you're parsing it for, then you can start saying, okay, for each of the things that I'm parsing, let's take a look and find out what are the particular risks when parsing this in this particular parser. Computing is about parsing data. It's about taking an input and turning it into an output of some form. So it's actually completely feasible to do this. This is the process known as threat modeling, which is one of the things done in the uh, security development lifecycle. Okay, uh, um, <clears throat> in interesting answer. I, I was more looking at um, uh, a way of how to uh, organize security in an within the organization, within the development process, not so much in the, in the coding itself, which would be a very good topic for uh, another podcast. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's say I have a team of 10 developers. Well, that's a lot. Five developers or six. So they have like three groups of peop two people working on stuff. Do I have to turn everyone into a security expert knowing about all these general rules? Or is there a way to have like a security team scanning those groups following what they do? Is it more educating the programmer or can I apply uh, security as a concept into a team? I think it's too expensive to fix it all after the fact. The, the problem is, is you end up with these endemic security flaws and maybe you have a good security team and they find 75% of the issues. Maybe you have a really good security team and they find 90%. Maybe they are rock star expensive ninjas and they find 99%. You know what? You still got entire, you're still having, the attacker only needs to find one hole. And that's really a bottom line. And you can never find 99% with even the most amazing rock star team because there's just too much code. Every programmer doesn't need to know about all the obscure attacks. But, They do need to know when you receive data from, an, uh, from a potential untrusted source, scrub it. You don't need to know all the ways to get around things if it's not scrubbed, but they need to know to scrub their data. They need to know to do input validation. They need to know enough to know how to validate it. As a security community, we're saying, bad developer, you didn't do this. <laughs> and I tell you, I have done this personally, and I've gotten the response, nobody told me I had to do that. Well, yeah, if someone had told me, if my compiler had thrown an error, if when I was building it, you, know, you can't check code in at Microsoft if it's got any of these couple thousand bugs. Like you just get this error that says, dude, you're not, you're, you're not going home today yet because this code is crap and it needs to be good. And here's all the reasons why it's not good. So they so, have systems that can detect these errors automatically. And you detect them early. You don't, you don't get it so these things are fully built and fully tested and buddy-coded and have gone through multiple layers of management, and all of a sudden, six months later, wait, you didn't validate this. You have to rewrite from scratch. You know, 
Yes, that makes the security person look all smart, but that doesn't lead to secure code. If you want secure code, get it, get insecure code stopped at the source, at the programmer. And if the programmer misses something, have it as much automated process early on. You know, one of the easiest things that development shops can do is to fuzz. Fuzzing is the process of throw random stuff at your systems and see if they fall over and die. We joke there are two kinds of systems. There were those that were fuzzed during development and there are those that take five seconds to fall over and kill. Fuzzing shouldn't be so effective. You, there's no intelligence. You know, security people, we think we're all smart. You know what? You just go and take a random number generator and you feed it into stuff and it blows up. You're like, but, but I learned all these smart, cool ways of doing things. You know what? Your smart, cool ways of doing things are really, really effective, but you can't try 100 million of them overnight. If you try 100 million things overnight and you have one in a million attacks, you wake up in the morning and get 100 attacks. So fuzzing is just a very easy thing that can be done very early in the process. Do you need experts to come on in and actually evaluate your system at some point? Uh, I, ar- arguably, yes. Empirically, the bugs that an expert finds are different than the bugs that fuzzing finds. D- but uh, both have pretty tremendous value. So, in general, we can say it's a good idea to have the programmers trained in security or at least make them aware of it. The programmers should know what steps they should take to avoid the issues. If you think of it from an engineering perspective, what are the risks of building this bridge in a certain way? If you don't say, by the way, there's wind and it can blow in a you know, fashion that you have to defend against, well, the engineer's not going to build a bridge that you know, can defend itself against wind. Engineers have to be aware of the threats to the system they're building. If they're not aware, they, the system will fall. Now, that doesn't mean that they need to know how to you know, generate wind. They don't need to know all these things about you know, maybe the, the, the demos but they need to know how to defend themselves. Testers should actually be trained in how to do at least some degree of security testing. They should actually be trained. The, the, the model that I've seen in most orgs is you've got your devs that are actually building a system. You've got your project managers that are actually managing it and dealing with requirements and documentation and you know, getting the code actually done. And you've got your testers that are making sure the system does what it's supposed to do. One of the things it's supposed to do is defend itself against attackers. If you want to know where the in-house knowledge of security should be, it should really be in your testers and your programmer should be aware of that if if they don't do X, Y, Z, P, whatever, the testers are going to bust them. So the testers are the security team. It's sort of like my own tiger team within my organization that is needed. It's not, it should not be... Okay, you should have the security expert. You should have the performance expert. You should have the user interface expert. But it shouldn't just be like the one guy who knows user interface and everyone else is throwing icons all over the place. You shouldn't have like the one guy who cares about performance and everyone else is you know, running in loops and taking 100% CPU. It, it really is. There should probably be individuals who are just really focused and really know, but... There's a, gen- there's a general level of knowledge that needs to be distributed throughout your organization if you want to actually write code that you know, is performant, has a good user interface, or is secure. Security is just another thing that needs to be spread throughout you know, all the coders if you expect to see it at the end of the day. Just like one bad component can destroy performance, one bad component gives an attacker a way to break in. So these are good... Well, these are people you should probably inject into a, a peer programming model mm-hmm. by, you know, if they, if I think if a, uh, a normal programmer who's specialist on like the functionality, the core functionality, mm-hmm. and he just sits uh, once, uh, one day per week together with the security guy, and another day he's spending with the user interface guy working on the same stuff, that might help. It might indeed. I mean, part of it comes to you know. When does the programmer work with the user interface guy? Well, he's working on user interface code. Maybe UI isn't a perfect example, but perf really is. Like, peer programming with the perf guy. The perf guy's like, 
This is the wrong sorting algorithm. You're going to get burned here. Check it out. Here's a good example. Perf has always had an easier time than security because it's really obvious when you're taking 100% CPU. <laughs> <laughs> you know, customers, it's, it's very easy for them to notice. Uh, this thing took eight weeks to complete. That's not acceptable. Um, the advantage of the security guy is a security guy can be like, yeah, watch what happens when I give you this input. Everything blows up. Okay, then. I think I could talk uh, on for hours, um, <coughs> but I think we just um, put an uh, end here. We're still at the 24th Chaos Communication Congress. A lot of interesting lectures to follow and um, look at and a lot of fun as well. Thanks for being here. No problem. Good times. Um, so, yeah, this is it. Episode number 15. And I think I'll uh, again forget to tell who I am. <laughs> this was Tim Pritlove speaking to you for Chaos Radio, the international podcast of the Chaos Computer Club. And thanks again, Dan. And this is it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you.